doing here? Indeed, in the name of all that is holy, what are you doing here? These are the words that the Lord God speaks to Elijah in the cave, we are told, on the mountain of God. Now our reading for today says that's Mount Horeb, it's also what we know of as Mount Sinai. So this takes place in the very place, the sacred space where Moses received the commandments. This is where Elijah seeks refuge. And it's not surprising. So we enter into the story in the middle of the story. And let me recap what has brought Elijah to this cave. Uh, as alluded to in the reading, uh, Elijah had um, trouble in the northern kingdom of Israel where he was the, one of the prophets of Yahweh in the royal courts. He had bested the prophets of the god Baal, or Baal. Um, he had bested the prophets of Baal, the Baal worshippers, uh, in a kingdom where uh, people were falling away from monotheism and from the Yahwist way and going back to their old form of worship of Baal. So he had bested the prophets in what um, might have been considered a miracle, and he brought down the wrath on his head of Ahab the king and of his queen Jezebel by performing what he called, you know, a calling out of the ancient uh, god of Baal. So he had to flee for his life. What goes wrong for Elijah is as much as what goes right that is a part of this story. Have you ever been called out, asked to account for your actions? This moment brings us up short, and it is implied in the question, what are you doing here? That implies that you are uh, not where you're supposed to be, doesn't it? You don't belong here. Explain yourself. And the question sounds more like a rebuke than it does actually a question. The call-out culture. Uh, the call-out culture today when one is called to account on social media for what one has posted or said that may be interpreted as derogatory or harmful to a marginalized group. Some consider call-out culture uh, has identified it as a tendency of the progressives and activists uh, to publicly name instances and patterns of oppressive behavior and language. It's a public performance, but it can be uh, or take the form of cyberbullying. Uh, but here's the thing. The call-out culture isn't always about accountability. This has become very much a part of campus life. And you may have seen this in an article that was published in The Atlantic and went viral a few months ago. Users of social media of a certain age in general, but undergraduates in particular, according to this article, are calling each other out on their tweets and their memes and yik yaks and reddits and so on. Stress about call-out culture has gone way off the charts, way beyond uh, being held to account for homophobia or racism or violence and so on. 
And the risk adverse have taken it especially hard. For instance, in this article, one college student wrote, people won't call you out because, of your, because your opinion is wrong. People will call you out for literally anything. On Twitter today, I came across someone making fun of a girl who made a video talking about how much she loved God and how she was praying for everyone. There were hundreds of comments, rude comments, below the video. It was to the point that they weren't even making fun of what she was standing for. They were picking apart everything, her eyebrows, the way her mouth moves, her voice, the way her hair was parted. Ridiculous. Now, when I was a young girl in the eighth grade, uh, many decades ago, way back in the analog age, uh, just out of boredom and, and probably herd mentality, regrettably, I did something very similar. I became one of the mean girls. I was a Heather. And I, uh, uh, with my small group of friends, I, I uh, turned into a bully. We, we turned on one of our own, right? And we shamed her. She was a lovely girl and uh, had done nothing, you know, she was, but be loyal to our friendship circle. But we picked on her. We picked on her appearance. We denigrated her intelligence. And we ostracized her from our group. Now, the girl's mother tried to intervene and call us out on our bullying. I got called into the principal's office, where I, in fact, denied having done anything wrong. Uh, but I did get the message. For while I never really reconciled with that girl, the bullying stopped. Whatever differences there may be in the moral psychology of today's college students as compared to their elders, we know that digital technology is driving some of the worry about getting called out and becoming objects of stigma. Social media does enable users to be hostile from behind a screen and to pile on. So there may in fact be many hundreds or even thousands of witnesses to a public ostracizing. But social media, I think, simply magnifies and makes visible what is already there in our flaws as well as our strengths. It makes visible the good, the bad, and the ugly in everyday life. Pain and prejudice offline translate into pain and prejudice online. We read about bullying that happens on social media and tend to think it's the media that causes the problem without realizing that social media and the internet are just making it more visible. We need to get strategic about how to solve the underlying problem, the core issues that we see more visibly online. As Brene Brown would say, Failure and vulnerability are the very elements of spiritual growth and personal wisdom. What if, it, what if it were God who does the calling out? Not, of course, for the purposes of ostracizing or stigmatizing or ridiculing, but God calling each of us to live into God's plan and thus to live into our own humanity. 
God calling us on our journey to be more fully human. And Elijah can show us something about that, because please keep in mind, while he was an important prophet, he was, after all, under all of that, a human being. Because here's how the scripture goes. God says to Elijah, go and stand on the mountainside because the Lord is about to pass by. And Elijah is obedient. He complies. He wraps his face in a mantle in preparation for his godly encounter on the mountain. Sensing the presence of mystery, he covers himself in order not to look upon the divine holiness. So he stands at the opening of the cave in the face of a storm. The wind is howling, right? Howling so strong that it splits stones. And after the wind comes an earthquake and the mountain splits. Following the earthquake is fire. The elements, right? At least three of them, wind, earth, and fire, are in this story. But these spectacular forces of nature do not deter Elijah. He doesn't fear them. They are not enough to put fear or religious awe in him. The wind, the earthquake, the fire, each of which might have inspired people to religious awe, they fail to move Elijah. The natural forces are not God. The Deuteronomist is, clear to make, is, is uh, quick to make that very clear in Scripture. It reads, the Lord was not in the wind, the Lord was not in the earthquake, and the Lord was not in the fire. Not until after these phenomena stop does Elijah become aware of the divine presence. Scripture reads, after a fire, a sound of sheer silence. What does sheer silence sound like? An audible silence? Perhaps the silence of mystery so great as to inspire awe. A silence so complete as to overwhelm the ears. Such a silence falls upon Elijah. Scripture tells us this is the moment, this is the moment when he wraps his face in a mantle in order to face God. At the opening of the cave, Yahweh speaks to Elijah, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Probably being rebuked from having fled the wrath of Ahab and Jezebel, retreating from danger. Being human, Elijah recites the hopelessness of his situation, even though he has been earnestly maintaining the cause of Yahweh. The people of Israel have defected. The altars have been torn down, and a persecution has been launched so complete to have left only Elijah still alive out of all the prophets of Yahweh. And now even his life is being sought. Yahweh responds by laying out the political future, which is actually rather bloody, and Elijah's role in it. He is to anoint the next kings. He's to engage in this political intervention that crosses two kingdoms. In the coming chapters of 1 Kings, we'll see that Elijah anoints Elisha, 
as his successor. In other words, he passes the mantle of prophethood on to Elisha before Elijah is assumed into heaven, taken directly to God without suffering death. Now, you'll remember that in last week's reading, we had the Feast of the Transfiguration, and it was Moses and Elijah, two people who, according to the tradition of their assumption, are alive with God, who appeared with Jesus before Peter, James, and John. And, of course, we know that during the Jewish Passover, at the Seder meal, a cup of wine is poured and a place at the table is reserved for Elijah, Uh, because the belief is that Elijah will come to announce the return, the coming of the Messiah. So now I want to turn my attention only for a moment to the gospel, because the story in the gospel is very familiar. Peter, Peter sees Jesus coming toward him, Jesus the Son of God, approaching the boat of the disciples across the water. In the midst of a storm, again with the wind, right, The wind, the waves, I don't know, lightning, rain, whatever is happening, there is a a scary storm. Uh, And again, the elements, the forces of nature are present. And Peter and the disciples see Jesus, who appears to be walking on water. So Peter, uh, always uh, impudent Peter, asks, Jesus, can you give me that power so I can walk on water too. And interestingly, Jesus does not object to Peter's question. He doesn't rebuke him for asking to be in God's place. On the contrary, Jesus says, okay, I command you, come. So Peter takes a few steps, and then for whatever reason, he looks around, presumably distracted by the strong wind and recalls, hey, I'm only human. And he begins to sink. Jesus reaches out his hand to rescue Peter and Peter has the presence of mind to grab it. We have something to learn from Peter about being human. This story is really not about the water. It's not about the wind or the storm. It's not about defying the laws of gravity. It is instead about learning to trust in God. It's about living more deeply into trust. It's about acknowledging our own fallibility and vulnerability and grabbing that hand when it's offered because that hand is always there for the asking. Elijah and Peter both show us the way forward this week, and this week with such troubling news, challenging us. Where am I in this text? There are lessons in how to be more fully human. Peter shows us that being fully human entails living into trust in God and in community. And Elijah shows us that we don't have anything to fear except God, even when the wind and the storm and the fire around us is threatening and chaotic. So I'd ask your indulgence for just a moment to close your eyes, if you will join me for just a moment. 
we know that God calls us each by name. Fear not, God says. I have redeemed you. You are mine. When you call me, when you go to pray to me, I will listen. Experience your graced history. Where have you experienced God in your life? Amen.